instantly it seemed as if they just people just came to life. And I thought, this is what we should be doing. These organisations were very much about using the arts, using creativity to enable people to take the veil from their own eyes, if you like, and see that in fact they did very often have sufficient skills and resources within themselves. And, and visit about the therapeutic side of growing plants on people with mental health issues. So, you know, that again is another side of what I do, you know, the environmental and ecological side of things feeds into the art by me. Therapy for me has a very specialised formation. It is about producing space, it is whether that be a, an imaginative space or whether that be a physical sense of space. And, and I think that becomes really important in our considerations of mental ill health in all different capacities. Welcome to Reclaiming Our Heritage, a mental health foundation podcast inspired by its two-year oral history project supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The project's aim is to record and preserve the spoken testimonies of the mental health community between the 1950s and the early 2000s. The full interviews by these contributors and others are available in the Reclaiming Our Heritage archive on the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival website. My name is Helena Rafai and in each episode I will explore themes and these will be further discussed by a professional guest. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors, including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the subject of how therapy has changed over time and hearing from the different voices on this theme from the Reclaiming Our Heritage Archive. We'll also be exploring themes of creativity in the arts, because the thing that ties all these voices together is their involvement in mental health and the arts. Our expert on this episode is Cheryl McGeekin. Hello, if you could introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Yes, sure. So my name is Sherwin Geekan. I'm a senior lecturer in human geography at the University of Glasgow. And my whole career has really been based around trying to understand the lived geographies of mental ill health. Um, And it's a real passion of mine, both professionally and personally. And I've done this both in a historic sense, but also um, in the contemporary landscape as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating having just gone through parts of your bio as well and so what I want to ask you briefly just before we kind of kick off is you became so interested in the subject of historical mental health and the arts what was it that drew you to that? Yeah so I started my professional I suppose um, career in mental health through my PhD which was um, on the topic of the Scottish psychiatrist R.D. Lang Um, and I became really interested in thinking about humanistic forms um, of treatment in relationship to mental health, but also really a humanistic way of understanding um, the experiences of mental ill health in all its kind of various formations. And I was very lucky enough during my PhD to um, meet with a a lovely curator um, at Glasgow Museums called Anthony Lewis, 
Um, and he really introduced me to lots of different kinds of artifacts, um, material remains, if you like, of um, particularly institutional life um, of mental ill health in Scotland. And one of these was a collection of outsider art called Art Extraordinary. Um, and the minute I saw it, I just became so fascinated by these pieces of creative work that just spoke so loudly to the various experiences of mental ill health. And I was so drawn to them and so um, inspired by them that we decided to develop um, many, many collaborative projects and learn so, so much about um, what I really didn't know was this very kind of underground creative landscape um, that goes on um, around mental health in institutions and out with them as well. So that's how I really got into thinking historically about creative practice um, around mental health. It's a beautiful rabbit hole once you start going through and discovering who's doing what. And especially in Scotland, I was overwhelmed by it. So yeah, I totally agree. So it'd be a great point now just to explore some of those voices. And we're going to talk about that theme of how therapy has changed over time further. So for listeners' benefit, we've listened to the clips on this episode, and I've given you a bit of background on each of our speakers, but for the purposes of our audience, we're going to start with Isabel. So Isabel was interviewed by volunteer Emily for Reclaiming Our Heritage Project. And for our listeners, just to give that background information, it's a full name, Isabel McHugh, MBE, remarkable woman, born in 1944 and grew up in, outside the Gorbals in a place called Hutchestown. She lived there until she was 21, and she's the founder of Theatre Nemo, now Nemo Arts, um, and works with adults in recovery from poor mental health. And they do this through creative workshops. And Theatre Nemo's inception was inspired by Isabel's lived experience with her son, John, who sadly took his life after years of mental illness and failure by the system. So let's hear from Isabel. And what was your first role? that encompassed mental health and arts? The first time that it came to mind was really because my son, my oldest son, had become mentally ill and uh, he himself was uh, very creative. Uh, and when he was in the hospital, what we found was that they were just medicated to such a point that they, they couldn't do anything. It was just medication. There was so many doors of opportunity opened and none of them was ever taken up. It was just medication, medication, medication. And well, that 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 was the first when I thought, why why are they wandering about in a psychiatric hospital, shuffling about, mumbling, and it just it was so horrendous to watch. Now this would be 93 or four. Uh, and I, I just thought that definitely isn't right. So that was my first thing I've ever been in a, a psychiatric ward. I have any knowledge of, you know, poor mental health and mental illness. And what what was the, the role you then took on? Did you um, work with the hospital specifically? No. Uh, hospital, I don't think they were all that terribly keen to tell you the truth. <laughs> Keep shoving me out the road. Uh, what we did was uh, we would just go in and sing, you know, some of the other thumb we'd go in and we'd sing, and join with a beautiful singer, uh, and we'd try and just talk to everybody. And within 
well, a few, just short space of time, a couple of weeks or something, you go, people literally shuffling in to see what we were doing. And then gradually they started bringing me poems that they're just written in wee bits of paper and telling me their stories and things. And I thought, what they just instantly, it seemed as if they just, people just came to life. And I thought, this is what we should be doing rather than just medicate. Sit there, shut up, don't annoy us. We've got too much to do. What is the tell you, whatever. And so how did that move on then? Did you work closely with the group of people that were in the hospital with your son? Or? Uh, we didn't work closely. It was just when we were visiting, we just communicated uh, with everybody. And that was, you know, just when we went in and out. It wasn't till maybe about, well, 98, we thought, we could we could do something here and invite people when they're coming out of the hospital, invite them to come in and, you know, we have music classes or, or whatever. So that was the first thought. We never really got started, although we did start up the charity and got charity recognition and things, but we never really got anything done to sort of mid two thousand. Uh, just because everything was, uh, my whole life was just, uh, uh, it was just so chaotic that we just couldn't get anything done. So, why, you know, we're thinking about how can we do this and speaking to people, they, this, is what we, this is what we're planning to do. So that was Isabel interviewed by Emily. Now, what I wanted to start with, first of all, before we move on to, to speak about Isabel and some of the themes is, is about this word therapy, as I think it can be a bit of a polarizing word at times, and there's still quite a lot of stigma attached to it. How would you define the word therapy? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. It's it's a term that has so many, so many meanings. Um, they're very individualized at times. Um, they're also very pluralized as well. Um, I think in many ways, I a lot of the work that I've done is around issues of so-called asylum and thinking about asylum and all its multiple formations from thinking about it as a place of safety to thinking about it as something that is uh, something that is more confining um, and perhaps um, abusive at times as well so I think therapy can have those dimensions as well it's very much about um, support and provision of space a, a space of some some kind a space of safety a space of confinement a space of talking a space of peace um, but yeah I think it has a very complicated meaning that it, it is particularly individualized depending on your own experiences of being in those spaces but as a geographer therapy for me has a very specialized formation it is about producing space it is whether that be a, an imaginative space or whether that be a physical sense of space and and I think that becomes really important in our considerations of mental ill health in all different capacities. That's a really fascinating way of explaining it. Isabel talks about her son being mentally ill being placed in a psychiatric ward and the level of medication he was given without another option. Have you come across similar stories like this in your research? And if so, what are some of the notable impacts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I find Isabel's story really powerful. Um, I think her voice 
in and of itself is a very powerful political um, voice uh, in the kind of realms of thinking about mental health care and mental health treatment more broadly. Definitely these stories arise um, in lots of ways across the history of mental health. Often we don't hear from family members though. Um, So what I found really wonderful hearing Isabel's voice is that we have these people on the margins, if you like, but that are so central to the process of care of mental health. We have families, we have friends, we have people um, that just care about individuals coming into the scene. And particularly when Isabel talks about coming in to see her son and then being kind of encapsulated into this world where she was extremely concerned about lots of people that were on these wards, lots of people that were, um, you know, being, in her words, perhaps neglected, perhaps ignored or just highly medicated and and not being given a sense a real sense of existence and I think hearing those stories is so vital and so important for our development of these narratives and these histories of mental ill health and it made me really think about the fact that maybe what we need to do is go back through these records these historical records of of whether it's the asylum or the mental hospital, whatever it might be, and actually look for those hints of family narratives and and look for ways in which how can we include these vital people of care that we often hear nothing about their experiences, which, as you could tell from Isabel's um, own voice, um, they they are harrowing at times and they are particularly poignant at times on how care comes into being in different ways. So I was just really transfixed and inspired by the fact that Isabel's voice became part of of this narrative of care. I really, really thought that was a wonderful achievement of this kind of project. Yeah. So she talks also about how creative aspects of life, like singing, storytelling, poetry, which you've you've touched on, seem to immediately make an impact on the people on the ward. Why do you think that this method was not explored more in some of these places as a means of therapy? Yeah, I mean, again, I found it was really interesting that she was talking about the 1990s, which to me seems incredibly late for, you know, not having this progressive system of the arts being part of these worlds. We know from historical work that this stuff was happening across um, the century, if you like, the last century right up um, until the present day. We know it happens, but what really is is why it becomes invisible is because it's not valued. Um, it's not valued by people um, to keep these materials that are produced, to record these materials that are being produced. Um, and so what tends to happen is it gets forgotten. But I was very intrigued to hear that the um, institution that John um, was in at the time um, was not having any kind of creative practice going on because it seems quite quite late. Um, I think these kinds of things often happen on an underground level. We often get what is official about um, an institutional day um, and then you get the kind of underground networks and Isabel becomes part of this underground network that just brings things to life in different ways in institutions and I think that happens an awful lot. We just in the historical record don't really know much about it. So I think a lot of the work that I've been doing is around remnants of of things that have happened that nobody has taken any notice of and that people throw away literally in the rubbish bin. And it takes people to uh, find these remnants and then think about them and think how they can tell a story. So I definitely think um, I was surprised by Isabel's sort of 
highlighting in the 1990s that this this somehow wasn't visible in any kind of way in, in that particular place. And that's really quite sad. <laughs> totally agree. Isabel's gone on to create something just extraordinary with Theatre Nemo, uh, not only in the memory of her son, but also fueled by the want to kind of help and show that there are other methods do you think there's a snobbery or even um, an archaic attitude when it comes to creativity assisting mental illness? And how would you like to see that progress in the future? I think there is a snobbery attached to the arts, I think. During you know, my work, I've spent many, many times in institutions, in community settings, you know, individually with people that are what they would term artists and they're doing creative work. And I find it, it is an incredibly rewarding, incredibly inspiring experience. But when you take that work potentially outside into this arts sphere, it then becomes part of something that can be labelled, it can be judged, it can be perhaps even just kept in a bubble of in the work that I do, outsider art, which isn't always very helpful for inclusion. <laughs> it actually can, can do the opposite. In terms of mental health, I think it's actually become really open and really kind of considered a, a fantastic thing to encourage creativity in um, mental health. So I haven't come across anyone feeling that it's a negative thing at all. Often what's missing for people that experience mental health, and I'm sure in this forum, you know, we don't need to tell anybody about that, but this idea of shame and guilt and this kind of notion of never of failing, of not being good enough in these kind of models that we make within the Western model of medicine actually really has a very harmful effect on ever thinking about how we experience life and how we can actually not become better, because I think better is a strange way of thinking about our mental health. It's on a permanent trajectory, but to live a an existence that is meaningful to you um, and, and that is healthy to you and the people that, that you love around you, to have the ability to do that in whatever capacity you feel okay with should be valued. Totally. And I'm going to come on to that later with a, another one of my questions. I'm going to move on to our next person and testimonial and introduce Jeanette. So she was born in 1961, grew up in Glasgow. She spent a brief time in Fife as a child, but then moved back to Glasgow. An occupational therapist with the NHS for 18 and a half years with her first role at Crumpsall Hospital in Manchester, but then became head occupational therapist at Dyke Bar in 2000. And she's worked, led and facilitated numerous arts initiatives and projects associated with mental health. So let's hear this clip from Jeanette being interviewed by volunteer Ailey. What was your first role within Scotland then? Within Scotland, I became head occupational therapist at Dyke Bar in the year 2000. And we have always had creative activities that we did. We've always had probably two art groups a week. Sometimes we had tutors from Cardonald College came in and ran an art group, or sometimes the OTs did them. And I've used art within counselling and therapy. I remember working with a lady um, whose story is on record, actually, who had significant abuse from childhood. And when she was regressed and not able to talk as an adult, we would use art for her to draw. And she drew very childlike because she was kind of in a childish place. And it was very powerful to be able to see the images about things that she couldn't 
talk about. So creativity in the arts has been something that we've used. We've done exhibitions with Indite Bar. We've used metaphors of recovery. And I suppose as it became more on trend, we were more intentional about using art in a in a therapeutic, well, it's always been therapeutic, but in an intentional way with themes and, and projects. How would you like the relationship between mental health and the arts in Scotland to develop over the next five to ten years? Well, I think it's on the right track. Well, social prescribing was kind of around for a bit. I'm not sure that it's really taken off as it might be. I would like to see more of that, that, you know, that you don't need to go perhaps to an anxiety management group, although, but perhaps you should go to drumming group as well. I mean, the drumming group that we've set up in Ardrossan for called Drum for Your Life has been a huge impact on people's well-being because it's that sense of belonging that people get. I think more awareness within with mental health clinicians, psychiatrists, practitioners that the arts, and I think there is recognition, but perhaps the medical model is still prevalent in some areas. Certainly within Ayrshire, where I live now, well, I've always lived in Ayrshire, but now down on the West Coast, Ayrshire hasn't had a mental health festival until last year. So there's not awareness of it within the mental health field as there would have been in Paisley because we would get so involved in it there. So I think expansion of understanding that the arts has got a significant contribution and increase and building on the research uh, that mental health is improved by the arts would be good to kind of build on the, the evidence base. And do you have any final message or anything else you'd like to say that we haven't covered yet today? I think in my early career, occupational therapists were just seen as people that distract, so do an activity to pass the time. Actually, I used to could you get used to get on at my staff about doing colouring in books because I thought it was too juvenile and look how on trend that is now. Yeah, I think understanding that certainly within my profession that the arts and creativity are hugely important as important as the scientific as the scientific input or the interventions, but within within the general population that doing something creative is good for your well being. Dyke Bar Hospital is a mental health facility in Paisley and I think people may have sometimes heard of the role occupational therapist but they perhaps think it's more to do with physiotherapy or something more physical in the classic context of recovery. Jeanette talks about using art. How have you seen this method progress over the years with any research that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think occupational therapy um, doesn't get the credit it deserves at all. I think it's such a fascinating field and such um, incredible historical, particularly women, have taken on this role and really developed it in so many different ways. So it really, I think it does need a bit more research. I mean, I don't know, they may have a lot out there, but I don't think it's got enough because we need to understand more the role of these um, individuals and in, in the development of not only creative practice within institutions, but also actually just the care and the support that they, they obviously give in, in a massive amount of ways. Yes, I've, I've definitely seen the role in, in operation and I've definitely seen how much um, it really, really helps people to feel confident. And again, I think something about um, mental illness that, that is very, very 
distressing is it strips away your confidence. It strips away your ability to believe in yourself at times, particularly if you have been institutionalised for a certain amount of time. And that doesn't mean inpatient staying necessarily now, but being connected to an institution for a long time can actually really strip away your ability to believe that that you can do things, that you are more than the institutional label that is attached to you. And I think occupational therapy and people that work in creative practice within these institutions have an incredible ability to empower people to have a sense of belief, whether that's through theatre or song or, you know, tapestry, knitting, writing, whatever it might be, you can actually see the power of it on an individual both in their bodily sense before the session they might be very look very low um and by the end you haven't necessarily taken their their you know issues away but what you've done is you've allowed them to feel and believe in themselves what's been the biggest transformation you've perhaps seen in your research when it comes to mental health care yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's been positive, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of the work that I've done um, was looking at sort of asylum care, which was obviously um, back in both the 1800s and 1900s. I spent a lot of time looking at um, institutions in sort of the 1950s and 1960s in Scotland. And I think we can all agree that while some people had good experiences of course they did um the majority of people were being treated we were being incarcerated rather than cared for and maybe with the best intention possible by some of the staff it just wasn't necessarily a caring environment I don't think we've necessarily found a utopia of care I think there are a lot of problems and again I think these problems are structural I think there is no investment or not enough investment in mental health care services the processes of deinstitutionalization that have literally split systems apart um, have led to people maybe being able to experience a better time at home than in an institution but has led to a very complicated and messy procedure and practice of people's daily lives. So we're now kind of transporting people across the city or expecting people to be able to live their life in a very kind of frenzied way across space. And it works for some, it's difficult for others. But I do think we are working towards a system of care. I definitely see a lot of care. I think we're starting to really notice when people are not happy um, about their care. And that's so fundamentally important because that was not allowed to be heard um, in, in past times or was very difficult to hear. We've got a long way to go. I don't know what the answers to... Um, the system issues are I want to hear about them and I want to learn about them but I certainly think it's it's complicated and what we need are more people with lived experience to be able to have the space to make decisions not only just tell people what the problems are but actively make the decisions and say this is what we're changing and this is how it's going to be done I totally agree. Jeanette was asked how she would like to see the relationship and arts developed over the next decade. And she makes comments about social prescribing and about more recognition around the arts. But there's also an argument, and we've touched on it already, about the shift in attitude has been a major factor. What are some of the shifts that you've seen in perhaps a geographical and social sense? 
Yeah, I think people are more open to embracing the arts and mental health now. I think that there is a sort of breaking down. The more people talk about it, the more people show people what they're they're doing, and um, the more conversations, the more as Jeanette mentions research, there does have to be more research into what does the arts actually do? Because I think we get a lot of people saying, well, of course it's positive, because I can see it, and I certainly can, and I sit and I watch and I think, oh my goodness, this is outstanding the difference it makes but then I have to go back to university and fill in a form and say what was that impact and I go it just looked amazing they just looked full of you know empowerment they were you know going out to do their daily tasks in a more empowered way and they were like did it cure them and it's like well uh, that's not the point so be our systems need to be more open to understanding but we need more research in both a qualitative and a quantitative sense of what is really going on when people create but I do think it would be helpful particularly around policy and um, to help us have real strong policies that advocate for the arts within um, mental health and make it not just social prescribing. I think it's a wonderful thing um, that Jeanette suggested, but also um, to actually just have it as a fundamental part of mental health care. I think there's so many great people out there that, like Jeanette, that have changed so much for people and are now talking openly about that change. That's what's really positive. So, yeah. No, definitely the the perception. I think still with the word arts, people think you know it's some kind of fuddy duddy uh, upper middle class aspect, and it's just like no, it can be absolutely anything. Good handstands. There we go. And yeah, nice exactly. That's that's art. We're going to move on to our final testimonial, and I'd like to introduce Jerry. He was born in 1948 and is a writer and artist um, known for poetry, amongst other things, and trained in ecology and environmentalism and very much focused uh, on this still in terms of leading lives on the planet. He trained as a facilitator with the U.S. Navy near Holy Loch, and the role was associated with alcohol, drugs and substance abuse programs. And from there, realized that there was more to these problems and took more of a holistic approach. So let's hear from Jerry. The kind of artist I am, uh, I work with natural objects. I create, I, I wouldn't say, you know, I mean, some people say I make darkness, well, I do that, but it's artworks which involve plants always. So, you know, and, and obviously there are a whole other areas that you could usefully discuss and, and visit about the therapeutic side of growing plants on people with mental health issues. So, you know, that again is another side of what I do. You know, the environmental and ecological side of things feeds into the art that I make. So I had always been aware that I, you know, clearly... I felt a lot better when I'd spent a day in the garden than when I'd uh, been chained to a desk, as it were, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's an observation of my own. And and, and the first concrete realisation that that could be therapeutic was in, in the hospital setting, yeah. mm. not just for me, but for other people. Mm. And what was it that, um, what was that reaction uh, from the patients that made you, you, feel, you feel like that? Well, essentially feedback. Right. You know, people, people would say, why that they had enjoyed something and, you know, we'd, we'd pursue the matter a little bit and say, well, why? Right. And in various ways, people would say, because uh, it makes me feel happy, you know, in, in, you know, in various sort of like long-winded ways or short-winded ways, but that was the, that was the upshot of it. It takes me out of myself as another, a 
another kind of bit of feedback. And, and, and those were intentions, you know, those were our intentions. And we were delighted that it had in some small ways perhaps worked. Mm-hmm. And was there uh, challenges uh, working within a hospital setting that <laughs> feels like a bit of a no-brainer? But <laughs> Excuse my language, fucking bureaucracy. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Have you worked at all with the National Health? <laughs> oh, you know, you have to speak to sort of 17 people to get one result, you know, across mm. the board, whatever it is. And it's always met with suspicion, you know, why are we putting money in? <laughs> how will it help? Uh, basically, how will it help? So, yeah, bureaucracy. But also, we came in one hospital, in we, w- we were in right at the beginning, Donald and I, in the transition between in, uh, in Dumfries between the what was then the Crichton Royal and the new hospital that was being built because the Crichton Royal was a Victorian building and deemed not fit for purpose anymore, and we had it added we had added difficulties as a result of being on site almost from day one with architects with landscape architects and not all not only them but with the builders. <laughs> Jerry is, he talks about how important uh, the environment is to his work um, when it comes to therapy. Do you feel that we are starting to regress in terms of trying to explore therapy? And by that, I mean, technology and the evolution of modern life can be a blessing and a curse. But there's often this discussion for space, the outdoors, nature, and a big part of that assisting us. How have you perhaps seen that discussion shift? Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. I think this idea of environment has always been very fundamentally important to the ideas around therapy. I think environment is something that isn't just out there, it's also within us. So we're always in this exchange between ourselves and our environments, or I would probably term it our worlds. So we live in multiple worlds all of the time. Um, And I think this notion that Jerry brings up so powerfully is this idea of of thinking about our environmental futures and thinking about the way in which the environment um, is something that's both lived in and aspired to. Um, And this notion of, of really being entwined with your environment is so important. And I think with the rise of awareness around the climate crisis um, and what that is doing to not just our planet, but ourselves um, and our sense of, of, of well-being in the world, I think there is a kind of increasing notion of what if we can use the environment or what if we can um, be part, a wider part of the environment, is that going to help us to reconnect um, and to somehow make ourselves feel, um, I guess, in a, in a better sense to the world. We do need to reconnect with our worlds before they disappear. Um, and if we can do that, then I'm sure that things like therapy um, will definitely take take a massive part in us connecting with our world again. So I've definitely seen debates around environment shifting um, for sure and I think just Jerry really encapsulates that through his use of plants and his want to really show the natural world and use the natural world and I think that that was a really powerful way of him communicating I think that the, the sort of really um, important aspect of the environment in our in our well-being yeah yeah he talks about the hospital setting and the challenges it posed and he's obviously quite open about that 
with regards to the bureaucracy. I, I know from experience that it's why people set up their own personal and grassroots projects. And it's obviously been a, a theme that has, has come up in this podcast as well. Do you feel that there's a fear over the unconventional? Probably. Um, I Although I think we're in times where the unconventional is the conventional now, <laughs> which is a weird thing to say, but I actually think we're much more critical of, you know, the actual structures that are in place. We're actually more critical about the conventional systems. Um, and I think that's really positive because I think we should be. But I think sometimes we have to check ourselves around that as well because it, it can be oversimplified to, you know, always critique what is conventional um, and what happens because actually for some people it saved their lives <laughs> you know the conventional has worked the conventional is something that has held them together and pulled them through I think sometimes we have to have this acknowledgement that actually is it too easy to be too critical here and actually can we step back and check ourselves because it also could be the same for a lot of grassroots projects it's extremely difficult to be critical of them now, I'm not saying we should be but just as we should be open-minded to think is this really working what does it really do um we should apply that the same thing to 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 grassroots projects too because they want to be um you know seen in exactly the same light as um conventional systems of care and as they should be there should be no hierarchy between them but absolutely i think grassroots um i think it's fascinating especially in these um audio clips to hear the stories of how group grassroots movements around mental health emerge and I hear it time and time again um, in the conversations that I have with people and I think what we need are more projects like this one that record those emergent moments of these grassroots um, organizations or or projects or whatever they might be, because it's that emergence that tells you so much about not only what is wrong, as Isabel's you know narrative highlighted, but also what its power um, is in that emergent moment. What came together, Jeanette and Jerry both allude to that really powerfully. So there's so much more that we need to do to salvage the histories of grassroots movements, not just now, but going forward as well, so that we can actually reflect on on them properly and, and think about them properly and recognise their incredible work <laughs> that they do. Totally. I have to ask about access, whether that be access to therapy, access to the arts within that that sphere, particularly for minority groups, those on low income, the most vulnerable. How have you seen that progress over time and what work do you feel still needs to be done in that area? I find it heartbreaking, actually, that we are in a time where we have the most wealth in the world that we've ever had and it is shared so unequally um, and that and men the mental health sphere is a microcosm of our capitalist society and I think unfortunately I think we are seeing a system that is so so under struggle that it is is broken it is absolutely breaking we are seeing people the most in need being turned away uh, we're seeing the most in need unfortunately taking their own lives because they're not getting 
the care that they desperately are calling out for. Um, and something has to change about that. And I think what's happening is that people are turning to alternative forms of care in whatever way they manifest themselves. And I've seen some wonderful, wonderful examples of Again, just like Isabel and Jeanette and Jerry, people stepping in to fill a void that has been created by our politicians, effectively. Um, and I think that is wonderful and we need to recognise that and give recognition to that. But it shouldn't have to be the case. Um, so I think one thing that we really do have to advocate for um, in mental health at the moment is for care. Um, and we have to really fight very hard, I think, and put a lot of energy and resource into making sure that our systems can take on people. They can provide care to our most vulnerable you know we're all responsible we all have responsibilities and um, whether it's to challenge our politicians whether it's to distribute our wealth as well as we can um, whether it's to just stop in the street with that person that is in distress and just ask them are you okay um, and see what you can do for them I think that our government has so much work to do as well I think that there's a lot to be done so final question, you've mentioned there about advocation of care, things going forward, particularly with that which you're clearly passionate about and quite rightly so. What would you like to see evolve going forward when it comes to the arts and in particular therapy? Yeah, I mean, I think quite similarly to Jeanette, I do feel very positive about the arts um, and mental health. I think it has a very strong position. I think it is very valued, um, particularly in Scotland. Um, I think it is being publicised really well. Um, I think more that could be done is obviously investment. <laughs> we have to invest in the arts to keep it alive. Um, but we also have to be very encouraging, I think, of more people that have experienced mental health to be running and developing their own um, arts and creative therapies um, for themselves. So we have to empower people and invest in people um, to be able to do that because I don't think there's anyone better <laughs> um, to develop these programs for the future than people that really understand what it does, what it's for, and it's different kind of manifestations as well. So I would just love to see and to help facilitate people in the future to take it on and to develop it in new ways. I think one of the issues that we've got with creative practice in mental health is everyone's just reinventing the wheel all of the time. So every art group that's starting, which is incredible, is sort of starting on the basis that they, they know it's happening everywhere else. They, they don't know how to communicate with people necessarily or they don't know where to look to, to get resources or to help and things like that. So I think if we had a stronger collective presence um, and really we're very open to sharing resources, to sharing ideas and expertise and, and all these kinds of things, then I think it could really take it to the next level. But I would love to see it as um, lived experience led and I'd love, and not even led, it's just completely driven. <laughs> but I certainly think in Scotland, like Jeanette, we're in a strong position. There's so many people doing the most incredible and creative stuff stuff that I'm like I can't even dream of that um, and I'm so inspired and so proud of, of everyone for being able to share their work 
work because it's not an easy thing to do um, and to just to do the work in the first place. Isabel, Jeanette and Jerry are completely inspirational in their fields and each offer powerful testimonies. They have all approached and considered therapy based on lived experience, their understanding of the wider impacts of mental illness, but fundamentally their love of the arts has fueled their respective journeys. Cheryl helps in positioning the macrocosmic meaning of therapy in its dimensions in that it should offer support and a space of numerous dimensions. There are also the complexities to consider when it comes to its relationships with mental health as everyone ultimately has different needs. Time has progressed and whilst the arts have been used as a form of therapy in multiple forms, Cheryl points out it's the value that's placed on it that's important. It's this value that Isabel, Jeanette and Jerry, along with countless others, bring to this field. And thanks to platforms such as Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival, their stories can be recognised further. It will be interesting to see how therapy will move forward with the help of the arts. And there is no doubt an agreement that whilst it's a proven method to help a wealth of people, it will need more investment and a value placed on it from higher powers. This podcast has been presented, produced and edited by me, Helena Rafai, for the Mental Health Foundation, with music by Lucy Parnell. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors, including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund.